2: Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Wednesday, February 2nd. I think this episode's going to be out by the end of the day Wednesday. It was supposed to come up Thursday. Eno's traveling, so we're doing this a day early. It's our second base preview, and it's exciting because second base, not as bad as it used to be. Not quite as deep as it appears, though. We'll explain why over the course of this episode. So we're going to do the same sort of format that we did with our shortstop preview earlier in the week, taking a look at overvalued, undervalued players, potential sleepers, uh, just players that you should be thinking about at various points in your draft or in a salary cap draft situation as well. So we talked about Trey Turner at the top of the board on the shortstop preview. You know, no need to get real deep into any sort of detail with him here. Of course, he has that multi-position eligibility right now because, you know, embarrassments of, of riches in Los Angeles. But, Ozzie Albies, I think, is really interesting because by ADP, he is the second second base eligible player coming off the board right now. If you want to draw him into the first tier, I'm not going to fight back on that. And the reason why is because when you run the auction calculator, he's right there with Bo Bichette. And Bo Bichette, as we talked about just a couple days ago, lives inside the first six, usually, of most drafts right now happening at the NFBC. So my question for you is... Ozzy Albee's actually a first rounder in disguise.
1: No, actually, I think he goes exactly where he's supposed to go in terms of if you sort by ADP uh, and then you look at the auction calculator results, he fits right in. He's a $26 player, and that's kind of a second rounder, and that's where he goes. I just wanted to point out to anybody who's been listening that we use the Fangraphs auction calculator. It's under the projections tab on Fangraphs, and that usually when we're at least speak for myself here usually i have that uh set up for 15 teams um you know we may differ a little bit on what projection system we use some time to time i see some things in the show notes about the bat x uh <laughs> I, I use the bat most of the time but atc is a sort of meta projection that looks at all of the projections that's a, a strong projection system to use you can use all the different ones that are in there. But uh, when we uh, cite values, it's probably either the bat uh, or ATC, or we'll, we'll say it's different. Um, and so anyway, the, the thing that's interesting about to me about Albies is opportunity cost. It's not necessarily, I think he's going exactly where he should go. The only thing is that when I threw pitchers in and, and switched over to the pitchers tab, I realized that there were three pitchers that go right where he goes or later that are projected to be worth more. Now, you always have to think about if you're gonna do like a mental um, sort of revision downward on on pitcher numbers, right? Because of their injury risk and stuff like that. Uh, and especially with this trio, Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom, Zach Wheeler's had some injury history. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily put him in the same injury risk categories as the other two, but he's also maybe not as good as the other two if you get a full season. Anyway, I think that's the big decision that people have with Ozzie Albies is do I take Ozzie Albies or did I not get a first round pitcher and do I want one of these guys in the second or third?
2: Yeah, I don't really have a, a case against Albies based on skills role. I mean, he's a max volume player. We saw Atlanta do that with their kind of core trio of guys. So Swanson, Freeman, Albies were playing a ton last year. Acuna, if you he were healthy, would have been part of that group as well.
1: Even with that little weakness against lefties, like they're going to keep him in there.
2: Yeah, he's a absolute max volume player, so that keeps the floor up. Similar to a guy like Marcus Simeon, he's a lot younger. I think we're beginning to have a lot more confidence in the power. I mean, a 30 home run season from Albies a year ago, uh, if you thought he was capped at mid-20s power, well, you were wrong. And I think I was part of that group. It is a little interesting to me. I mean, he's coming off a 259-310-488 line. Those first two numbers are not the beginning of a slash line of a guy that often goes in the early round. Of course, Albies also ran a lot last year. He was 20 for 24 as a base dealer. I think you could make an argument that last year was everything going right health and skills wise and you're more likely to get 25 homers and 15 steals with probably a better batting average and a boatload of runs and RBIs. That's still a really good player. So uh, yeah, I'll I'll concur with you. I don't think he's a first rounder in disguise, but I thought it was interesting that looking at him next to Bo Bichette, the projections on the dollar values were a lot closer than I would have expected. Pitching falls off a lot faster in terms of value, as you're going to see the shape of second base. It's more of a a slow. I don't know. Would that be like a water slide? The water slides have to be kind of like slow and not not ridiculous. A roller coaster can can drop a little faster than a water slide because of its design, right? So because of death, because of death, right? So I would say <laughs> sec, second base is more of a water slide. Starting pitching is more of a roller coaster. When you think about that, uh. you, you have that urgency in the middle to late part of round two to and maybe take a picture guys, yeah. and then say, yeah, I'm going to wait and, and dig into this, this depth or these similarly
1: quality players available. I do have an eat this, not that for Ozzy Albies. And who is it? India. Jonathan India. Is Albies equal or superior in most of the ways that I cite on this cast in terms of reach rate? Albies is superior. I mean, uh, India is superior. Barrel rate. India is is equal and uh the only thing that separates them is the speed and i and it, it could be nice to be like oh but india rookie you know like you know maybe he'll take off more the thing that's most predictive of stolen bases in the Statcast suite is times to first not necessarily raw sprint speed it's times to first hmm. and Ozzy Albie's is forty second in the big leagues in time to first, and Jonathan India is two hundred
2: and thirteenth. Oh, okay. There's your there's your little difference. It's only point
1: one five seconds, but it's a big deal. Not a very far distance, so the the seconds matter. Yeah, the it's seconds like, are crucial. It's like saying somebody won the you know broke the hundred yard dash by only point one five seconds. Yeah, like that. right. It's like well, no, it's a <laughs> it's
2: a big deal given uh, what we're looking at. The uh, second tier at the position, I I think it's really small. I think it's just two guys. I think it's Whit Merrifield and Marcus Simeon. Again, max volume guys, not quite at the power level of Albies in the case of, of Whit Merrifield, but he runs more. I think the thing with Merrifield that I keep tripping over is that for his age as a late breakout player, I keep thinking he's going to be a relatively fast decline guy. And things are holding up really well. I know you just mentioned the time to first is probably more important than sprint speed, but I was just looking at sprint speed year over year. Whit Merrifield has been above the 85th percentile in sprint speed his entire time in the big leagues. He's not losing speed. I don't think he's losing playing time, even as that roster gets better. He's versatile enough to play multiple spots. He's good by outs above average at second base. So if I'm not drafting Merrifield as a early speed play and pretty Stable source of batting average, I'd say as well. I feel like I'm going to be wrong about him again, and I don't think I can be wrong about Whit Merrifield four times and, and feel good about it. The thing <laughs> I'm worried about is flipping on Whit Merrifield and having the things I feared all along actually finally come through now. But honestly, I haven't found any reasons to believe that decline is looming just over the horizon for Whit.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing. He's got 40 steals. I think in some case, you know, the the, the actual magic. Uh, formula for predicting stolen bases is like sort of team strategy, like team uh, takeoff percentage uh, plus times to first, because again, uh, times to first, he's 177th. He's, you know, closer to India than to Albies. Here are some interesting names that are faster than him going to first. Dylan Carlson, uh, Ha-seong Kim, uh, Eduardo Escobar, Bobby Dalbeck is faster to first base. So first base, wow. uh, So, but I think what's happening is that the Royals are just comfortable with him stealing bases, and they think that's uh, good for them. And with a forty out of forty-four success rate, uh, there must be either a coaching factor there, or just uh, he's he's like you know got some of that you know the best base stealers do have some of that knowledge where they're just like. They scout the opposing players. They know exactly when to go. They know all the different little moves, and 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 you know really get the pitch, get to know the pitchers. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I still don't end up with many shares of his because um, you know these low power guys uh, scare me. He's thirty three, so I kind of feel like the the wheels have you know got to slow down at some point. Uh, he's projected to be uh, a league average bat, so it's not um, it's it's almost all on the steals, you know. Uh Just makes me nervous to pick someone like that at the top. you know I'd pick someone like that in the middle for sure, but do those concerns
2: apply to Starling Marte because I think from a roto standpoint, those are fairly similar profiles. The projections give Marte a little more power same age they're both thirty three I mean Marte came into the league a lot younger, but
1: Marte hits the ball a lot harder, yeah, and I think that just that gives just you stay, so much more just... buffer. Yeah, just it's like, you know, I think the worst case scenario for for uh, Marte is more like 18 homers, 18 stolen bases, whereas the worst case scenario for Whit Merrifield is like, you know, five homers and 25 stolen bases or something. It's just a question of like, you know, all around goodness. I want to ask you about Marcus
2: Simeon because he's in a less friendly environment and is facing some kind of downgrade to the supporting cast. No matter how good the Rangers are this year, they're not going to be the 2021 Blue Jays as a lineup. Projections basically say, at least the bad X projections within the auction auction calculator, basically say, do not draft him at ADP. That doesn't necessarily solve all of the possible problems. One, there could be a reason why Semyon is an outlier. So if you have a reason for that, I'd love to hear it. And, And two, You might be in a situation where you're building in that salary cap draft format where you can go get anybody you want, where it's dollar for dollar, pick the players you want, in which case I think there's no issue at all with Marcus Simeon. I almost wonder if he's just the kind of guy that for reasons that we were discussing about Albies, similar reasons at least, you can say there's just not enough that could separate him over another full season from the next group that makes me feel like I have to go get him where other more interesting players are, but at the same time, we're talking about a guy who has had two massive seasons in the last two full seasons we've had. Nineteen and twenty-one for Marcus Simeon were outstanding, and it just seems like he's not getting enough credit for what he did in those two seasons.
1: Yeah, I mean the projections are all pretty lined up, so it's not necessarily something we need to you know hang on the bad X. I mean his his ISO uh, projections range from two oh nine from Steamer. Uh, to 233 for the bat and 219 for the bat X. So I, d- I think they all say that this adjustment he's made, he made a big adjustment where he started to target uh, the top half of the ball on four seamers so that he could get, uh, he could go flush through high four seamers. So now he's a bit of a kind of like the Jose Bautista strategy where he can really launch high four seamers uh, for homers. Uh, and that helps him, you know, sort of spit on the breaking balls. Uh, And stuff like that. So it has, I think that's the source of his newfound barrel rate, his newfound power rate. Uh, So I'm buying, and I would say maybe I take the over on a lot of these projected ISOs. Um, So he could play less and still hit 30 homers, which is, I think, a risk because you've got a guy who had 703 plate appearances, 747 plate appearances, you know, 20, you know, whatever that is, and then 724 last year. So this is a guy that, you know, if you do buy him and you do buy in, you're saying the projections are missing the fact he's probably going to get to 700 again because the projections will never project anybody for 700 plate appearances because that's just how they work. Nobody nobody just does 700 plate appearances year in and year out. But Marcus Simeon is one of the hardest workers I've ever seen live and uh, he keeps good care of himself. He's an athletic guy and maybe he could do 700 again. And if he can do 700 again and the power level is real, now you got a 35 homer guy. Yeah, I think you get more
2: power ceiling from semi and then you get from a lot of the guys that are in tier three, which is a large group of very good players This is where most people seem to be uh, addressing the second base position this year. So I'm just kind of curious to see how he stacks up to this group as we run through it uh, for us based on ADP tier three right now includes Javier Baez, Jose Altuve, Brandon Lau is in this group, Jazz Chisholm, who we talked a little bit about, I think on Monday, we'll probably get more into him today. Catel Marte, Jorge Polanco, Tommy Edmond, and Jonathan India if we're drawing the line at the uh, top 100 mark. So all of those guys between like pick 60 and pick 95 in drafts over the last two weeks or so over at the NFBC. We talked a lot about Baez on Monday, so I don't think we want to get back into him here. But I think Semien versus Marcus, El- or Marcus Semien versus Jose Altuve is a really interesting sort of problem because the existence of El Tuve and my confidence in his floor makes me feel less urgency to take Simeon where he goes. I think Simeon has more power. I trust Simeon's power more, relatively speaking, but I think the setup for El Tuve is still very good. We saw the runs pop again last year, drives in plenty, not really any sort of batting average downside, whereas I think Simeon has a little bit of that. We did see the strikeout rate get into the low 20s again for him last year. El Tuve is still running a sub 15% K rate. So, you know, I know this is a position where players don't age particularly well, but Jose El Tuve is kind of my optimal second base target right now based on ADP and
1: overall expectations. Yeah, it's fascinating just to think, you know, here's a guy who had 599 plate appearances, 548 in 2019, 678 last year. Which one's going to have more plate appearances this year? I mean, 100% everyone's going to say, Marcus Simeon, right? Mm-hmm. You have to give me odds to say different. I'm not saying that I'm, you know, <laughs> you have to give me odds, but you could give me odds because we have odds in terms of ADP, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And and, uh, and so you know, if you kind of do that, eat this, not that. I could I could see it without two A for me. That's India, um, and uh, and I just wanted to ask you something. Do you have uh, max picks uh, in there that you're I looking do. at? what's the max picks for max pick for India Altuve Simeon, the latest or the earliest
2: earliest the earliest So the min pick on Altuve is 40 mm-hmm. the min pick on India is 48
1: and uh Simeon it's probably like, 17 yeah it is interesting to think that like yes uh India's ADP is 90 but I I've been in drafts where I was like, I'm going to get India next round or I'm going to get India in two rounds and I'm exi- I get excited about it and then he goes. So there, there are uh, people who are super excited about India who will take him early. Uh, so that's something to think about. Maybe the idea is India or Altuve, if not Simeon. You know what I mean? Like It's really better to have two or three ideas uh, because you know you don't want to sit there. The worst thing is in the, in the draft and you're like, oh, God. Oh, God, I'm going to have to get a third tier (laughs) second baseman if I don't get India, you know, and you're just like counting down the picks. So it's best to best to kind of group uh, these guys. One one guy that I think stands out that I love him to death. Brandon Lau, Uh, if you kind of sort by uh, barrel rate last year, Brandon Lau had the best barrel rate of any regular second baseman. Um, If (laughs) here's some sleepers for you, if you want some. Uh, low sample barrel rate guys Travis Blankenhorn Andy young who can't uh who can't make contact in Arizona and Max Moroff were the only guys uh, but uh, they combined for about one hundred fifty plate appearances anyway Brad Lau uh, your barrel leader the one thing is I looked at his uh, lefty right splits I know I'm not uh, genius for this but uh, you know, for his career, he has an 83 WRC plus against lefties, and that counts 2020's 200 WRC plus, where we thought maybe he's an everyday player now. Um, his strikeouts to walks against lefties are 7% walk rate to 36% strikeout rate against lefties. And against it's right, it's 11 and 26. So he's a fundamentally different player against lefties. I think he doesn't see them. I think the process numbers tell you that he doesn't see lefties well. And we're about to see a, a raised team that's going to add Bruhan and Taylor Walls, uh, maybe from the get-go as uh, as utility guys that could uh, play for him against lefties. Yeah, it's a definite concern. I think we probably
2: saw the max volume for Brandon Lau's playing time last season: six hundred and fifteen plate appearances. It's hard to imagine him going above that number, given the issues with lefties that he's had for the bulk of his career but is he a little undervalued because the power seems really stable i don't think the batting average is coming down any lower than the 240s i mean i think there's more evidence to suggest he's a 260-270 guy projections are kind of more in the 240-250 range but if you expect that and you get 30 plus homers with great run production this is something that i think we maybe didn't get into enough when we were discussing Wander on the shortstop episode the rays were second in the league in runs scored last year mm-hmm. so playing time in that lineup is extremely valuable because they produce so many runs. You're just going to be in a great spot to rack up those counting stats. I wonder if that's a path for Brandon Lau to actually end up being slightly undervalued, even though his playing time outlook probably can't get any better than it was a year ago.
1: Yeah, there's this really interesting thing that happens in the auction calculator. If you look at it, Jorge Polanco, Catel Marte, and Brandon Lau, and even Jonathan India are kind of 15 to $20 players. If you don't count Jonathan India, uh, those guys are 17 to $20 players. They come up right behind Merrifield, who's a $20 player, except there's a 50 point drop in ADP. So that is definitely something you can do, which is to say, I'm gonna eat this, not that. And uh, and it's a good strategy, like I said, to have three guys where you're like, okay, uh, I'm just going to wait. And as you know, Polanco, Marte, and Lau go off the board, I'm going to get one of those guys uh, later on in the fifth or something, or the sixth. The only problem is, and this is something we talk about with shortstop, is you're not going to get stolen bases from those guys. So you're going to have to have either a shortstop that still, I think you really want to have a shortstop that steals bases – and uh, an outfielder, or maybe you got Jose Ramirez, um, and and you're going to have a couple outfielders. But it it will kind of turf you a little bit because there are a lot of stolen bases in this, in this position. And Lau uh, and Marte and Polanco are not going to necessarily give them to you. Uh, but, you know, Marte is an interesting guy, too, because we talked about him last year on this cast. And I, I, I hope none of you all feel burned because... You know, the one thing that we said was that his max EV and his, his, his bad ball quality and his barrel rate were going to were gonna regress uh, in a positive way uh, and that he'd have more power. And all those things were true. Um, you know, injury is just unfortunately one of those things uh, that uh, that sneaks up. And for Cattell Marte, uh, it was really obvious when it comes to his sprint speed. Uh, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, times to first um, and... Uh, Oh man, I had this in my notes somewhere, uh, but um, uh, we heard about times to first, and uh, and but Marte's time to first last year was three hundred and thirty third. Yeah, that sounds like a guy who was hurt. Yeah, it's true, it's true. So maybe he can get back up to India's level and have you know eight to ten stolen bases. But mostly, I think I would think of him as a Polanco Lau type, where uh, you know there's a little you're shifting sliders around. They're not exactly all the same, right? But you're you're not going to get that many steals. And uh, with Marte, you're going to get you know mid 20s homers, maybe maybe higher if he's healthy for a full season and a really good batting average. Uh, With Lau, you're going to get all those homers and a few steals. And with Polanco, you kind of get the most balanced uh, you know output of the of the three. But in each case, you're not going to get a plus sign uh, on your stolen bases. You're not going to uh, leap ahead, which uh, is fine if you got your stolen bases somewhere else. So it's just something to worth pointing out. I think that's b- a big part of that fifty point drop. Yeah, I mean, I think
2: it's just where where those dollars come from determines how much more aggressive people are with Merrifield and the others. Because if you look at the breakdown by dollar, like seven dollars of that value from Whit Merrifield's coming from speed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think Trey Turner is the only player on the list that's ahead of him. Almost $10 of Trey Turner's value comes from projected stolen bases. Tommy Edmonds not that far behind. And I do think there's some similarities just in in the power profile being reasonably light. Although I think Tommy Edmonds is one of those guys that has a, a better max exit velo than you might think. So the 10 or 12 homers he's likely to hit might be more stable than people realize. The speed's not that far behind Whit Merrifield's. Uh, playing time is not really a concern. He's versatile, just like Witt, where he can move off second base if they needed him to, but he's good defensively there, so they probably wouldn't do that. I think there's a really strong case to pass on Merrifield in that top 30-35 overall because you've got a shot at Tommy Edman later. The only problem with that is when you play that game of chicken with steals and you're trying to get 30 bags from someone if you get sniped, it's not as easy to recover. Once you get to this range, it becomes a lot more difficult, even within this position to find another guy that you could say, yeah, I actually see 30 steals coming from this guy. Who's also available later. You start getting into you know, the mile straws of the world eventually where you're saying, well, I'm taking this guy that really only gives me two categories, maybe three categories because I have to chase speed. So that's the, the downside of it. But I think from a, like a pure skill standpoint, I'm pretty content to sit back and take Edmund instead of Merrifield if I'm looking for speed at second base in this range.
1: Yeah, I think they're actually really comparable. In fact, it goes beyond um, you know just their projections. These these are guys that hit the ground running, older. You know, had to kind of push their way into the big leagues. They both play in massive parks that help sort of suppress what power they do have. Um, so, you know, I kind of see them as, as pretty similar. And then, you know, they even have, uh, some dual eligibility going on. They have the exact same second base outfield eligibility and you're right. If you, if you really want steals from second base and you target Edmund and you don't get him, there's nobody after him. The only guy after him in projections is Tism, but his ADP is higher. Mm-hmm. So there's nobody after him that even gives you $3.00 of value from from steals other than garrett hampson uh who is projected to be a five dollar player so and and i think you're taking a lot of a lot of different risks with garrett hampson you know it's not just how good is he going to be it's how much is he going to play
0: where is he going to play is he a regular all that sort of deal We didn't get much into
2: Jazz on Monday's episode, so I think we should talk about him here. Second and short, eligible. Plenty of power. I think the plate skills have always been good in the sense that he's always drawn walks. I think this could be a really fun profile if it all continues to trend in the right direction. I think there's kind of this snap reaction for some people to look at the K rate only and and say he's a little bit too much like Javier Baez, but he's not. When you look at the underlying numbers, the walk rate's a big part of this too. He doesn't chase outside the zone nearly as much as someone like Baez. If you look at him compared to any hitter last year that had 100 plate appearances or more, Jazz Chisholm ranked 172nd in O-swing percentage. There's there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's that's where Jorge Polanco was. That's where Trevor Story was. That's where Jeff McNeil was, different type of hitter. Uh, that's where Tatis was, right? So the approach is good. The underlying statcast cast numbers are good. He runs. He's young. I'm warming up to the idea that, you know, even though batting average could be a short-term concern, I think the floor with Jazz is actually safer than I thought it was at the beginning of draft season.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he's... There's a lot of hopes tied up into him, so I think the Marlins aren't going to, like, send him down if he's bad for 100 plate appearances, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, uh, that's an important aspect, you know? I was just listening to Dan Zimborski uh, speak on Ariel Cohen's podcast about his projections, and he said that when he does long-term projections, he includes contract status and uh, previous long-term pr- playing time. Uh, you know, in order to get a sense of how likely that player is to keep playing. And he said it was a different example, very different. Albert Pujols, he, he, you know, other projection systems said he wouldn't play as much going forward. But Zips, uh, Dan Zaworski's projection said, no, he's got this big contract. You know, he's, they're going to play him until the end or, or near the end. And, you know, Zips ended up being right about that. I think that's uh, a concern here with the with Jazz. is It's not a concern. It's that they're going to play him. He's the, their potential star, right? So he's going to play the full season. And the worst case scenario is, yeah, you get a 210 batting average for that. But you should get a bunch of power and steals. And to your point about the O-swing, the O-swing also went up and down fairly radically last season. If you do these the, the game-by-game graphs, uh, you can do rolling graphs on fan graphs where just click on graphs and then do like 15 game rolling graphs you'll see that uh every time his o swing went down his k percentage went down right after that so um i still see some some real upside there where he could improve that o swing just a little bit and he had some nice years in the minors in terms of walk rate we don't have you know minor league o swing data but like you know he had some nice years for walk rate so i think the eye is in there and there's just one little tweak that turns this guy into a superstar, frankly, right? And 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 a Javier and a Javier Baez comp is actually super exciting, I think, because you don't necessarily need to worry about Javier Baez's flaws at 30 yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like you've still got all those years in between. So I, I think you know here's a guy that worst case scenario gives you 210, 2020 uh, Best case scenario, I mean, we could be talking 275, 30, 30. I mean, th- he has those skills. Um, and, you know, as long as you covered yourself or as long as you're okay punting batting average or you covered yourself batting average wise, uh, I think he's a great pick. I, and, and he isn't the type of player I that I usually fall in love with.
2: I think from just a, a roster construction standpoint, we talk about it with cheap power all the time. I don't like padding my batting average to go get cheap power later because a lot of those cheap power guys have playing time risk because they're not good defenders. So mm-hmm. they can end up getting pushed out of some playing time. I think with a guy like Jazz, who plays up the middle and has that speed, that the fifteen to twenty steals seems like a, a lock for him over a full season, with room for more, as you suggested. I'll I'll pad my average earlier and accept the downside in batting average from Jazz, knowing that there's so many other ways that he can make up that difference. That I'm I'm fine with that. Like I think that's a huge difference in in speed guys versus power guys that you can get even later that look like great values on the surface but I think kind of have some hidden ways that they really mess up your roster Uh, but this is a really strong I gotta do something
1: weird here real quick on air on air typing oh yes this is the good stuff Uh, but what I'm doing right now is I'm creating a custom player list on Fangraphs I've got John Segura and Chisholm Jr (laughs) you you can't help yourself couldn't help yourself. But uh I just combined them by uh by using league stats. So if you had had both of those guys on your team last year, you would have gotten a 270 average and 32 homers and 32 stolen bases from your SS your shortstop uh middle infield combo. Not bad.
2: Yeah, I mean you could just you can counterweight jazz with, with one good batting average player and that's probably enough.
1: Michael Brantley.
2: Yeah, that could work. He's about as cheap as he's been since the injuries a few years back. Uh, Tier 3, really nice group of of second basemen. Again, I think you want to have at least one second-base eligible player by the time that group's gone, because even though there's a lot of multi-position eligible guys in there, it's about a dozen players in that group, and there's a clear drop-off going into Tier 4. Some of this is health-related. Some of this is just some questions about skills, but you go between picks 100 and pick 200, this giant cluster, you know, it's DJ Lemayhew, Jake Cronenworth, Ty France, Chris Taylor, Max Muncie, who's got the elbow injury right now, Brendan Rodgers, Luis Urias, Ryan McMahon, and Colton Wong. Of all those players, only Colton Wong is a non-multi position player. Everybody else qualifies somewhere else.
1: This is how major league teams find second baseman, right? You, you, it's very rare to have a second base prospect. Mm-hmm. You know, like. The only one I can think of right now is like Jeter Downs, right? And he's kind of a guy who's supposed to be shortstop at first, right? He was a shortstop at first, yeah.
2: Just about every one of those second-base prospects at the end of the time. Like even Segura, I think. Segura kind of became a second-base prospect. The Brewers got him in that deal. I think it was the Grinky deal. And then they moved him to shortstop, and people were like, whoa, can he still play that? And mm-hmm. he did for a little while. But uh, yeah, this is second not a position you're groomed for. Second base more found. You kind of fall into it. Either someone else in your team is better at shortstop than you, or you know you don't have a good enough arm to play third. And defensive shifts have also, I think, lowered the threshold for the athleticism necessary to play the position. I wasn't I mean I wasn't trying to throw shade at Max Muncie, but yeah, I mean I never thought Mike Mustakis was gonna play second base. Yeah, like, yeah. Just the, the types of players that teams put there are just different now.
1: Am I right in saying that the only one of these that was a top one hundred prospect was Brendan Rodgers? Or uh, was Luis
2: Sirius was. And Luis Urias Ryan, was. Ryan McMahon, I think was as well. Was Chris Taylor back in the day? Mm, I don't think so.
1: I mean, there's a lot more found value here than, than uh, you know predicted value. But uh, I do, I do like these guys, and I do like the multi eligibility. I just wouldn't want these guys to be my starter at second because I don't think I would be getting as much value out of them as I could be. I'd rather these guys were my MIS, my middle infielders, you know, because then I could, you know, in DJ Lemayhew's case or or Jake Cronin with the Ty France, put them over at corner infield and make them the backup at corner infield as well. Um, and then the other thing is Max Muncy. By projections, is the one that stands out. He shouldn't be in this tier. He should be in tier two or three. I mean, he he has a really nice projection. The problem is the projection is pretty hefty for a guy that we don't know may need Tommy John. Yeah, so yeah, he'd be comparable, I think, to even like Brandon Lau from a rotisserie standpoint if he were completely healthy, but but he's not. He'll zoom up draft boards if we if like we get information right. Sure, no, if they of report course. to camp and Muncy's like, yeah, I'm totally fine. I'm ready to go.
2: His recent track record in that lineup with that playing time and multi-eligibility, yeah, he'll he'll jump 50 to 70 spots in ADP between now and opening day weekend when, when drafts are happening then. But some would-you-rather toss-ups. Like, if you're choosing a multi-position eligible guy from this bunch, you're looking at DJ LeMayhew coming off the abdominal injury versus Jake Cronenworth. Do you have a strong lean between those two players at price or do you think both are overpriced?
1: I'm going to take Cronenworth. Uh, I have... Uh... I, I like that he gives you some steals. I don't think DJ LeMay is necessarily going to do that much going forward. And then the other thing is there's fairly good analysis out there, and I sorry I can't give you the exact link, but there's some fairly good analysis out there that the Yankees uh, got more of the deadened uh, new balls than mm. they got of the old balls and that they might have been hurt a little bit more by this two-ball situation we had last year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry for the phrasing, but maybe uh, maybe don't phrase it that way next time. <laughs> yeah, but uh uh and uh well, that's not good news going forward because uh he's always been a, a spray line drive hitter and if you want him to get back to 23 25 homers again, um uh, you want you you want the spring of your ball. So if he's a guy who hits 290 with, you know, 15 homers and a bunch of runs in RBI, that's great, but you know, I think Cronenworth can get close to him in runs in RBI. Not, you know, DJ LeMahieu will be superior there, but Cronenworth will beat him in steals and maybe even homers. Mm. Yeah. And batting average should be nearly a wash.
2: Yeah. I think until I know LeMahieu's is totally healthy, I would rather have Cronenworth of these two. I mean, I think with the next cluster, you get Chris Taylor. I have... No reservations about Taylor where he's going. Great glue guy for the Dodgers. Great glue guy for us as fantasy players. Short and uh, in, in outfield in addition to second base. I think it gets trickier with a guy like Ty France. I don't really feel compelled to draft Ty France inside the top 150. That's where he often goes. I don't know if there's a significant playing time concern for him in Seattle. I don't really see, even if they bring up Rodriguez early and make the outfield more crowded it hinges, a lot hinges on the health of both Kyle Lewis and Mitch Haniger, and no one getting traded. So I, I can see France getting another 600 plate appearances. But first base, second base, like if you don't hit for more power, you have to steal some bases. Ty France doesn't steal bases. So I just wonder, is there another level for France that you see beyond what we got in 2021? Or was that kind of the best that we can get from him? And he's the sort of
1: guy that, as that team gets better his role
2: ticks down a little bit.
1: I mean last year was his age 26 season. by all accounts that's the peak year for, for uh, players this you know currently I'm not saying that he's gonna fall off a cliff. 26 through 30 is mostly a plateau but uh, you know he was 26. it could have been his, his peak season. It was a nice batting average on balls and play. He's is uh, supposed to regress off that. His barrel rate is pedestrian uh honestly, six point nine for his career. Um, you know, the thing that stands out for me is he's just like pretty good across the board, you know, like okay, uh discipline, pretty good contact, pretty good power. Like I just don't I don't see that as being someone that uh, is foundational to their success. Uh he doesn't stand out on defense. So I there could be some playing time risk if they make a big splash signing or like He's not someone that you're like, oh, yeah, that's our number four hitter.
2: Right. He's the guy right now. But as the lineup gets better, lineup position He'll get, changes. Keep getting
1: pushed down. Yeah.
2: And then eventually, I think playing time, maybe not this season, but I just think that becomes a concern. Also, so right. no speed. There's, there's no other ways for him to become more valuable unless he starts launching. If he becomes a 30 homer guy, but he has to barrel the ball more to do that. And I don't see enough there to expect that. So I think he's an easy avoid for me in this range. Muncy, I love the discount. If I had minimal injury risk to that point and somehow felt optimistic about him, I would take the discount because the floor is so good. But if I had even a little bit of injury risk already, I'll let someone else get the value in that spot. Uh, Luis Urias qualifies all over. is Is he the kind of guy who falls into the playing time trap that we're describing? Does his versatility almost work against him? I think he had a lot of issues throwing the ball last year. Range wise, he's fine at third base, but consistency wise, even making routine plays, there can be some problems. I wonder, I wonder really, like what's next for him this season? I watch a ton of Brewers games, and and obviously with the move, I watched a a few less than usual for a a little stretch last year. But as much as I wanted the Luis Urias breakout that we saw a year ago to happen, the encore gives me some pause, I like him because of the versatility, but I don't know if there's anything more he can offer us skills wise
1: yeah i mean the the good is there he had the best uh strikeout rate uh of his career um uh, you know he had the best barrel rate of his career the bad is is fairly clear too uh he was two hundred and thirty sixth among infielders in outs above average no that's not all infielders that's everybody. But still, oh, my God, 236 out of 242 qualifiers. Didi Gregorius was 242nd. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's like an offense platoon guy that you'd almost want to have a defensive replacement for. And if that's the case, that has a little to do with why you only see 550 plate appearance projections for a guy who had a 9% barrel rate, 20% strikeout rate, a good, uh, good plate discipline, and some speed. But if there's any team out there that'll find a way to play an offensive only guy, you know, almost every day, if there's anybody out there that needs offense more than the Brewers,
2: yeah, well, they, they can't afford to sit a guy that's 10% better than league average if he's even passable with the glove most days. So,
1: is there what's where's a soft place? You know, the Brewers a little better than I do. Off the top of your head, where's a soft place on that depth chart that he could land other than third base? Is there a corner outfield position that he could push somebody out of? I
2: guess if Renfro collapsed, they could tinker
1: What's around the hand- and maybe throw him out there. What's Urias' handiness? They're I mean, both righties. They're both righties, so it's not a natural thing there.
2: He could play some first base because if they go with Rowdy and they want to DH, well, if they if they don't want to play Rowdy against lefties and they want to play someone else at third, they could theoretically play Urias at first as an option. Never really think, thought he'd end up there, but
1: and who's the who's the backup to him at third?
2: Mm, Right now, probably technically like Jace Peterson. Who's definitely offensively a utility guy. Yeah, he plays everywhere.
1: It's an interesting bet, man. Uh, I think it's a pretty good bet to take at an MI level because you might get, if he does play every day, uh, these projections are going to be light and you could get a guy even just at the projected level who will hit 260 with 25 homers and 10 steals. Like Mm. if they just gave him the position for the year. Right, I think he's a. I think he's a very good draft and hold uh, uh, pick. in In a league where you just need to have multi eligibilities, there'll be there'll be weeks at a time where he's playing all the time. Right? There should be. Yeah, should
2: be everyday stretches at the very least, if not a consistent everyday role all season. If he gets better defensively at third base, then the conversation ends. It's his job. Like it's just not a. Where do we hide his defense? Today, he's been moved around. He
1: used to be a shortstop, so it's not implausible that like he could improve at third base. Yeah, just lots of reps, getting better at making those throws. It is uh, implausible, I think, from watching a fair amount of Rowdy to think that his defense will improve.
2: Doesn't seem like unfair <laughs> criticism to me.
1: Oh man, there was that one big play where the ball went by him. And he didn't he, get down on the... Yeah, I don't, uh, it just I don't, looked I don't like know. his range is how much he can fall to
2: the left or right. We talked. I think it was the table soccer goalie that I compared him <laughs> yeah. to. You push the button and it's a fall left or a fall right. Exactly. just phew, Like
1: just,
2: that's it. That's the range. And it's uh,
1: Sorry, Ryan, reliving great. moments. It's my monster. fault. I wore
2: the hat and it's just, Oh, all right. The two Rockies in tier four Rogers and Ryan McMahon, Ryan McMahon, by projections uh, makes sense. Value wise. I, I think he's probably a little safer. Um, but I, I don't want to give up on Rogers just yet, too. I, I think the the injuries he had during his development in the upper levels of the minor leagues are, are still worth accounting for. I think any player in Colorado with a, a decent K rate has a chance to be great in batting average. We saw it last year at 284 from Rogers. So Even if he just stayed healthy and did what he did last year over 150 games, that's a step forward. Supporting cast could be just awful, so that brings down the, the runs and the RBIs a bit, but... I really don't think there's anything blocking Brendan Rodgers from an expanded role and another step forward other than his own health.
1: Yeah, and it's not like your league is going to, uh, you know, park adjust his stats, right? So uh, I really like Rodgers in a draft and hold situation where not only does he give you dual eligibility at second and short, but uh, he gives you a high floor, actually, which is, of A guy you play every time he's home. You know he has more than three. If he has at least three games at home. I'm playing him. I'm playing him that week. You know,
2: mm-hmm. it's you know it's kind of funny. It's a, a similar profile to what we're getting from Ty France right now, who I don't like at his price, but I think that team is better. And there's the glimmers of possible downside there, where with Rogers, there's no playing time concern as a result of the depth chart. So that's the huge difference for me. The last couple guys in this group, I think I failed to mention Eduardo Escobar. He still has some second base eligibility. He's second and third eligible. He's in there along with Colton Wong. I think Wong is one of those consistently... He's sort of of like my Gene Segura. Yeah. Where I look at him and say he can do just a little bit of everything because he's a great defender at second base. He's less susceptible to moving around and losing a little bit of playing time compared to a lot of other players who start to fall into this range. Uh, So I have no... No issues at all if he's my mi. I'd rather probably have a a shortstop in that spot if I'm aggressively building from the middle earlier. But in deeper leagues, especially, this is this is the safer version of guys like Ahmed Rosario who have some significant issues with the quality of their contact. Not that not that Wong's out there scalding everything, but I just think we've seen enough of Colton Wong to know that his approach can be sustainable as a big league hitter over full seasons.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. You might look at uh Long's power numbers last year, best homers of his career, best ISO of his career and say, "Oh, well, that's just Milwaukee and maybe it was, but he also had the best barrel rates of his career. Uh and he had a new pit hitting coach for the, you know, for the first time in a while. So, um, you know, or, and and a new park where maybe he just thought, you know, my if I swing hard and and try to put it in play hard, like it, this park is going to reward me better than than Bush did. Um, so in any case, I think he's a not, not necessarily a lock, but you know a fifteen fifteen guy that can almost write that in pen. I feel like.
2: Are you struggling to close deals? B two B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high value customers drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash rates23. That's linkedin.com slash rates23 for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash rates23 and get started.
0: And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV satellite-free. You see?
2: Let's get to the last group here, Rapid Fire, as was the case for the shortstop episode. We're looking at guys like Jonathan Scope, Gene Segura, who we've talked about already. I think it's Getting known. Getting short here. You should it's have a known. whole Segura episode. He is, he is loved on this podcast. <laughs> uh, we got Kike in this range, Gavin Lux, Josh Rojas, Abe Toro, Andres Jimenez, Garrett Hampson, Nick Madrigal. This is the 200 to 300 range, and it is packed full of players with... Wide ranges of outcomes for playing time. A lot of guys could end up in more part-time roles. I think with the versatility of some of these guys, they end up cobbling together everyday playing time despite their flaws. I would say I'm a little worried about Jonathan Scope in the same way as I'm worried about Ty France as the Tigers keep getting better, whereas I, I thought previously he was an undervalued accumulator. That might start to dry up a little bit, maybe by the second half of this season, so be a little bit cautious there.
1: Like, there might be a better defender at third coming up soon that pushes Candelario to first. They, you know, Candelario's already played some first. I think the highest floor on this list are Segura and Hernandez, uh, Enrique Hernandez. Uh, the highest ceiling in this group is Gavin Lux. I would agree with that. I, I still Hampson? think it's still... Garrett Hampson? I, um, or Nick Madrigal? Uh, Madrigal has no power, zero
2: power. He's no power, but he might have a safer hold on playing time. And I wonder what the Cubs are going to be like as far as letting guys run. Is it just going to be maximum green lights for Nick Madrigal, where he could do do the Nicky Lopez sort of thing and hit two eighty with zero power, but steal thirty bases over a full season because they just they need to manufacture runs.
1: I don't know. They don't strike me as that. They strike me as more like picking up station-to-station station guys, although Schwindel is kind of a weird first baseman. They do have, you know, in Horner and Madrigal, they're they're kind of cobbling together stuff. I you know what? I can't tell you about the Cubs. I can't figure out the Cubs. I can't figure out the Cubs. Are they just are they in the perpetual rebuild? Are they are they trying to get better? They do like some interesting moves here or there, but right yeah. now they just seem to be just like kept, capturing all the 30-year-olds that other teams don't want to play.
2: Great place to be really, but I'm with you on Lux. I still think one more turn for him makes a lot of sense. I think Josh Rojas is okay, but I don't I don't see a lot of ceiling there. I see more of a playing time floor, better for draft and hold than for for leagues where we can make moves.
1: But it is a weird place to be for Rojas where it's like here's a guy who has like the third best ceiling among his peers in that tier and like the third best floor. <laughs> it's like Woohoo. You know?
2: Woo-hoo indeed. I think if I'm looking for the cheap speed here, I'd rather go Jimenez than Hampson and Madrigal. Because I think Andres Jimenez, there's a little more in the bat with him than there is with Hampson and Madrigal. That's the difference for me. There's a better chance he's a passable big league hitter.
1: One thing that disappoints me about Lux is, you know, I'm getting a little bit of a Colton Wong-ish feeling off of him. Um because the batted ball stats, we keep giving him more time. We keep giving him more time. Now we've given him three hundred and fifty batted ball events. With a 4.6% barrel rate, that is absolutely below average for a position player. I just don't think, I think the power might have been a PCL uh, aberration. And he's a guy who, uh, I think your upside is Wong this year. You know, 265, 15, 15. And that's, that's asking him to steal more than he has and play more than he has. So I say he has the best upside in that tier but it's also not a tier that has much upside uh and I think honestly it's a tier that I don't in like a 15 team league I don't I don't know that I want to take part in I'm still chasing Gavin Lux I'm trusting the
2: scouting reports with the power I think we could see seven and a half to eight percent on that barrel rate there were glimmers of hope in the hard hit rate in particular it's just getting the ball in the air more consistently when he makes that hard contact to make it happen, I'm actually a little skeptical of the speed. I think if he steals 15 bases, I'm going to be thrilled because I think he's popping 20 homers while he does it. I think it's more of like a, a 20 homer, 7 steals sort of profile if things start to click 44th in for him. and time to first, dude. Well, hey, you know what? Maybe it's a little bit like the uh, the run up to Trevor Story's speed a few years ago where Story didn't steal nearly as much as he probably could have at the beginning of his career, he was getting to power right away, though. That's the I don't get those athlete difference. vibes,
1: though. Didn't you get an athlete vibe off of Story from the beginning? I mean, that guy could throw a hundred, and
2: I, I think people just have a weird reaction to Gavin Lux's face, and I can't figure out why. <laughs> I think they just look at him and they're like, "No, ah, that's not a face to get excited about." <laughs> no, you know, it, it's it's like I'm probably thinking about this a lot because of, of we watched that NFC Championship game together, and everyone just loves Jimmy Garoppolo, and it's like it's the
1: John (laughs) Ham on 30 rock
2: situation where it's like everyone around him just thinks he's amazing. And his world is totally different as a result. Gavin Lux is like the opposite of that, which is, that's not fair. Like, I think there are still good skills here. There are good plate skills. The walk rate went up last year. The K rate went down. He's still young. What he did in the PCL just a few years ago, if you contextualize it with WRC plus was off the charts. Good. So I am still chasing Gavin Lux Uh, as we go last Question to throw at you. This is not a position with lots of late, late sleepers. I mean, if you're looking for sleepers at second base, it's guys like Ramon Urias, who might just play a lot in Baltimore. Maybe Andy is sort of catching his own spot in Texas in an improved lineup. He could take a quiet step forward. I know the baseball forecaster had a nice box on him. Uh, in NL only leagues, maybe it's like a Tucupita Marcano just playing a lot in Pittsburgh. I don't know if there's going to be a lot of power there in the Short term, maybe even the long term, but he might just be a good sort of like batting average plays every day kind of guy for them. I think if you're looking for actual value here. It's older guys with some bounce back potential Two Mets. Coincidentally, I think Jeff McNeil, where he's going right now is a good value. You're trying to get some late average and maybe find a guy that's going to play a ton. He could be that guy and
1: might, might take a trade. I think part of why he's not being drafted is because the playing time projections are low and it might take a trade to get him or an injury. But It just you know.
2: seems so likely. They've got enough old guys on that yeah. roster where he'll, they'll
1: find playing time and Robinson Cano is one of those old guys. And could They they could maybe even just cut Cano. You know, Cano has like one or two extra base hits in the entire winter league that he's playing right now. Mm-hmm. I want to give some love to Ramon Urias who's kind of an old guy that, that kind of fits almost but just doesn't have the same track record. Ramon Urias, among regulars at second base last year, had the sixth best, uh, seventh best barrel rate. Now, I know that park is going to change a little bit, but uh, heres I think he's just boring and maybe not the shortstop of the future, but the shortstop of the present, and it's hard enough to find a shortstop. Then the other thing that I would say is that Pittsburgh is rife for, for sleepers. My favorite is not necessarily Topeka, Topeka Tupito? <laughs> Marcano. Uh, I really like Rodolfo Castro. Uh, dude has uh, one of those uh, fireplug bodies I've talked about. Is it like a? It's not fireplug. It's a fire hydrant. <laughs> fire hydrant. I think uh, uh, bodies. To Tyler O'Neill. Yeah, or or uh, Harrison Bader. Where it's just compact and strong. I mean that mm. dude, and he had a good barrel. He had the best barrel rate of any Pittsburgh uh, second baseman last year. Obviously some contact issues. I think they might just let him play it out. Diego Castillo uh, has better defense. I think he might get some time at short. I think Marcano will spend more time in the minors. Um, But those are the two guys for me, Diego Castillo and Rodolfo Castro, that I'm a little bit interested in. And I think there's going to be a little bit of a carousel there, so it's kind of hard to depend on any of those. But if you want to put one on a bench... Uh, want to draft? Want to draft and hold? You want to look for a prospect? Uh, you know, I don't think he has that prospect luster, uh, Castro. So he's the kind of guy you could pick up in a in a in a prospect league and a dynasty league late in the in the restocking draft or something, and just put him on your bench and see what happens. There is a world where Castro kind of improves his contact rate and uh, hits a bunch of homers next year. Yeah, lots of
2: opportunities in Pittsburgh, and a handful of names uh, all more interesting than some of the past options that have been cast out there to try and soak up that excess in playing time we need to go that is going to wrap things up for this episode of rates and barrels before we go i should say if you'd like a subscription to the athletic you can get one for 33 percent off the first year at the athletic.com slash rates and barrels on twitter he's at you know saris i am at derek van ryper we are back with you on monday thanks for listening